This is the Fleet Street Fox column for Monday, May the 23rd, 2022. Yes, Prince Andrew should parade with the Garter Knights and then be kicked into the Windsor Castle ditch. There is a school of thought which says, if it's tradition, you must keep doing it. That's why the Queen appoints luminaries to the Order of the Garter, a modern-day round table of the most chivalrous who devoted themselves to public duty. It's why, every June, the Garter knights and ladies process through the grounds of Windsor Castle to St George's Chapel, where new members get their own stall, with a helmet and sword suspended above them and a shiny brass nameplate. And tradition is why Prince Andrew, who not five minutes ago announced he was retiring from public life, is apparently insisting he parade at this year's Garter Day event, in full regalia, complete with feathers on his head. This is despite the fact that it was only March when he stumped up millions to pay off a woman who'd accused him of sexual assault. Despite the fact that public opinion of him could not be any lower, and despite the fact that members of the public have been given tickets to sit on the Windsor lawns with a picnic to watch the procession. Perhaps he should be praised for unquenchable optimism, but not many alleged sex offenders would think it wise to get done up like Liberace and prance about in front of people who are within arm's reach of throwable foodstuffs. Although it will be a joy to see the headline, The Duke of Yolk, if anyone feels like taking half a dozen free range with them. This year, Tony Blair will be among those inducted, so more than one target is available for anyone who feels able to outwit an entire regiment of the guards and airport-style security. But back to being chivalrous, which it says here in my dictionary means gallant, honourable, courteous, all qualities which Prince Andrew has conspicuously failed to display for six decades so far. The next entry defines chivalry as the medieval knightly system with its religious, moral and social code. The combination of qualities expected of an ideal knight, especially courage, honour, courtesy, justice and readiness to help the weak, a man's courteous behaviour, especially towards women. Raises eyebrow at the listener. The Order of the Garter dates back to 1348. Its membership is in the sole gift of the Queen and perhaps she knows the personal qualities of her second son far better than any of us. But a man who carried on being friends with a criminal who'd been released under house arrest after admitting soliciting a minor for prostitution was pictured with the same paedophile while he was in the process of settling 36 civil claims about abuse of young girls, was named in court papers as his associate, and only publicly stated he was appalled at the crimes a decade after he must have had knowledge of them, does not exactly scream, I'm dead chivalrous, me! Then again, Andrew was appointed to the Garter in 2006, before the legal cases against him began. It was also seven years after he'd invited dodgy financier Jeffrey Epstein and his girlfriend to Balmoral, six years after the pair of them attended a party with the Queen, and four years after he'd brought Ghislaine Maxwell and Kevin Spacey into Buckingham Palace to sit on her throne. Perhaps, she thought, he was just being chivalrous. After all, he said himself he has a tendency to be too honourable. Of course he's a man with too much honour, too much privilege, too much royalty, too many titles if you ask the people of York, and too much brass neck if you ask anyone else. Which excess of honour, and brass, is the reason why he will be dressing up in velvet robes, 
draping himself in precious gems and sticking an ostrich feather bedecked cap on his head to parade before the ticket-holding public as one of the 20 most chivalrous people in the kingdom. As a royal garter knight, inducted for personal service to the sovereign, he believes he will be in the public procession in a private capacity, which makes about as much sense as anything else he's ever said. The problem is, the only service he's performed for the Queen is to move her family closer to compulsory redundancy. Andrew waited almost a quarter of a century after his friend admitted child sex offences before regretting his association with him. Lawyers attacked his accuser for years before he agreed she was one of Epstein's many victims. And by dragging the scandal out from 2010 to 2022, he did more to damage the royal family than Diana, Fergie or Meghan. And Prince Harry's criticised for writing a book. Unless he's pen pals with Ian Huntley, there's nothing he can write that would make Andrew's wrongdoing pale by comparison. So the Queen appoints her family to the Order of the Garter because monarchs have done so for nearly 700 years. The most honourable people she can think of will parade in their finery because she can't think of a lollipop lady who'd be worth a slot. And Prince Hans Drew will be among them, despite it all, because otherwise it's just gulf between here and the grave. Other knights who've drawn royal ire over the years have been struck off. Andrew could, at the very least, find himself NFI to this and future years of chivalric celebrations. But there is another fine old tradition which Her Majesty could, if she wanted, reinstate. It's called degradation and last happened in 1716, after the Duke of Ormond was booted from the Order of the Garter after supporting a Jacobite uprising. It's the royal equivalent of that moment in Mary Poppins when Mr Banks has a hole punched in his bowler hat. The Garter King of Arms reads an instrument of degradation as heralds remove the knight's banner, sword and helmet from above his stool. They're thrown to the floor and kicked by heralds down the length of St George's Chapel, out of the doors and into the Windsor Castle ditch, which is as fine a resting place for Prince Andrew's honour as anyone can think of. Now that's something the watching public would really cheer. It might also restore some of the royal reputation which Andrew has cost. After all, if it's tradition, you have to keep doing it, right? Hello, there's only one Fleet Street Fox column this week. So today I'm going to give you an audio version of a golden oldie, a column that I wrote on the 1st of June 2018. Now, this is about um, a dear friend of mine, Shirley Denson, who unfortunately died last year, having been snubbed repeatedly by the government and the Ministry of Defence in her battle for justice for nuclear test veterans in general, and in particular her husband, Eric who was a sampling pilot who flew through the mushroom cloud of Operation Grapple Y in 1958. Um, Shirley was a remarkable woman, absolutely astounding. And this is the background of how, uh, together, she and I managed to put some pressure on the Ministry of Defence in order to win a meeting with the then Defence Secretary, Gavin Williamson, who uh, she walked into the room, did Shirley, and said, ah, so you're the man who killed my husband. She rocked him back on his heels. And as a result of her meeting uh, with Gavin, he promised further research uh, and a medal review, 
Now, the Medal Review came back several times uh, and refused the veterans a medal, but we're still pushing on that point. And the research finally reported back in February. And uh, thanks to Shirley, we now have scientific proof that nuclear test veterans died in greater numbers, um, died of cancer and died of suicide uh, in greater numbers than uh, the control group of other servicemen. So what this woman did uh, is absolutely astounding. And um, because I have an opportunity to go back and revisit something that she did, I thought you might enjoy this. This is how you find the proof. The determined widow waging a nuclear war with the Ministry of Defence. Shirley Denson is one of the few people who has fought the Ministry of of Defence and won. And if I was the Secretary of State for Defence, I would be very worried about what this 83-year-old great-great-grandmother is capable of. After more than 20 years of struggle, she got a war widow's pension after finding proof that her late husband Eric had been irradiated while flying sampling missions during Britain's nuclear tests. Eric had piloted a converted Canberra bomber sniff plane through the mushroom cloud of our biggest hydrogen bomb when it was detonated over Christmas Island in the South Pacific. But when he got home, he started to have crippling headaches. Shirley told me, One day he was holding his head with tears running down his face. He was in agony. We took him to psychiatrists, but they had no idea what was wrong. Twice Shirley found and saved her husband as he tried to commit suicide. The third time, in 1976, he succeeded, slashing his wrists in a wood near their home. Shirley was told by the MOD all of his medical records during his time at Christmas Island have disappeared. But then she discovered a radiation meter in his cockpit registered a dose of 13 Röntgen the equivalent of about 12,000 dental x-rays. Despite a series of legal hearings in which the MOD claimed Eric must have been mentally unstable because he used to wet the bed as a child, it was enough to win him a war pension. But Shirley didn't stop. After the Freedom of Information Act was passed, she applied for further details of Eric's service. In December 2007, they sent her a single sheet of paper which confirmed his dose of 13 Röntgen, among the records of 13 other aircrew whose names and doses were blanked out. And three months after that, they sent extra documents as additional information. It contained a bombshell. There, in black and white, it said, Thus the initial experiment was carried out on personnel flying the secondary sampler. Eric's plane, codenamed Sniff 2, was the second to enter the cloud. Eric had been subjected to an experiment. At the time, veterans were trying to sue the MOD for negligence. Shirley gave their lawyers the documents, but as they had more than a million papers to read, it seems to have been lost. A little while ago, she came across a copy and sent it on to me, because I've been reporting on the veteran's story for the past 16 years. Like her, I've seen a lot of these old documents. This one was about testing the film radiation badges thousands of the veterans were given during the tests, and comparing their readings to the Charlie meter, which measured radiation in the cockpit. I read through it, and then I fell off my chair experiment. Blimey. Three paragraphs later. Care was taken to ensure that as little shielding effect as possible was given by the ejector seat and that no equipment of any description shielded the badges. I flicked back. For the test, a badge was put behind each crew member's head, on his two armrests and on his seat pan. So when they maximised radiation for the badges, they were maximising exposure of the men. His dose, according to the badge in the centre of his chest, was 13 Röntgen, as we already knew. But the bottom of the page was a table showing that the dose to his head was the biggest of all, 
almost 19 Ronchin. Could it be linked to those headaches? And the specific dose to his testicles was 8.8 Ronchin. You'd need to work in a modern nuclear power station for about 460 years to get the same dose as that. Eric has four generations of descendants. More than a third of them have an abnormality, including skull deformities, developmental problems and extra and missing sets of teeth. Eric knew he was flying through a mushroom cloud. He was likely aware of people testing these badges, but he wore no extra protection and his widow is sure he was never told about a risk to his DNA. Shirley said, he never breathed a word about his missions to me, but if anyone had warned him about genetic damage, he would never have let us have those children. In February, the chairman of the British Nuclear Test Veterans Association, Alan Owen, told me four vets were returning to Christmas Island for the 60th anniversary of Grapple Y in April and launching a medal campaign. Mirror editor Alison Phillips agreed to look back it, and when a friend introduced me to Labour Deputy Leader Tom Watson, I asked him to do the same. As a former Defence Minister, he knew of the issue and had even tried to fix it by finding the scientific missing link the MOD had always demanded. But it requires scientific method that geneticists say has yet to be discovered. But Tom was only in the job six months. Now, as deputy, he has some responsibility to talk about medal giving. So he said he'd throw his weight behind it. Veteran John Ward, 81, agreed to meet Tom in Parliament and talk to him about his experiences and his belief that they're to blame for his daughter Denise's extensive medical problems. And then, with the greatest of pleasure, I rang the MOD. I've rung them for comments a lot over the years. I usually have to explain to the press officer what nuclear veterans are before I explain the story. We've got a document from 1958 which says personnel were used in a radiation experiment, I said. The only care taken was to ensure they weren't shielded and the scientists knew about the possibility of genetic damage. We're running it tomorrow. I emailed them the document. That was 9am on Tuesday morning. Over the course of the day, the press office claimed the papers were just safety regulations, that it was an experiment on badges, not men, and that policy documents say all kinds of stuff so it wasn't to be believed. I pointed out, repeatedly, a pilot's radiation exposure was maximised despite official awareness he might have genetic damage and this was no blue sky policy idea but a scientific endeavour that actually happened. An official comment landed in my inbox at 6pm. It said veterans were welcome to apply for compensation and added, At the time, the military monitored the health of our service personnel and it is no surprise that selected quotes from historical documents refer to this. One, the MOD has spent more than 30 years fighting every compensation and war pension claim brought by the veterans at a cost to the public purse of more than £17 million. Two, monitoring their health? Really? The Mirror decided to hold the story until the next day in the hope of a comment that actually addressed the story. At 9am I rang the MOD again. I pointed out the word monitor did not appear in the document once, while the word experiment featured prominently. Off we went again. The press officer claimed this was evidence of keeping the men safe, and I pointed out Eric had zero protection while flying through a cloud produced by a bomb 100 times more powerful than that which levelled Hiroshima. The press officer went home, another started the evening shift, and a comment finally appeared at 8.30 in the evening. It said, It is not true to say that these men were subject to an experiment to look at the effects of radiation. I didn't say it was. I said Eric was used in an experiment involving radiation like he was a Bunsen burner rather than a man. I note you don't deny it. The British nuclear testing programme contributed towards keeping our country secure during the Cold War and regular health checks were conducted throughout. Where are the rest of Eric's records then? 
you told Shirley you don't have any. The National Radiological Protection Board has carried out three studies of nuclear test veterans and found no valid evidence to link participation in this programme to ill health. There's plenty of circumstantial evidence. Studies have found one in three veterans had bone cancer or leukaemia, three times the normal rate of miscarriage, ten times the usual number of birth defects and elevated rates of infant death. And in 2011, a survey by the MOD itself found 83% of veterans had up to 10 different health conditions. It's just the MOD considers this evidence invalid. We published the story on our front page on Thursday. Tom Watson went on Sky News to demand the Defence Secretary Gavin Williamson apologise to Shirley and reveal how many other nuclear veterans were involved in experiments. I did interviews on LBC, British Forces Radio and Forces TV. These are some of the messages I've had since from veterans and their families. I had five sons after Christmas Island. They're all disabled. My nephew died age seven from leukaemia and my sister has an illness doctors cannot diagnose. My dad was at grapple and I have extra teeth too. And these, about the mirror splash yesterday. About to go and buy the mirror. I wish my dad could have seen this. And the front page. I was crying as I took it out of the stand. Dad died in 1983, still a young man, never knew his grandchildren. Best of all, though, was a phone call from Shirley. Thank you, darling. You've done Eric proud and told his story so well, she said. Now, what can I do to help you next? And that's the bit Gavin Williamson should worry about. What will we do next? <laughs>